Hello. Now at the time of recording this, it is Refugee Week in 2022. And so I thought it was a good time to release a compilation of clips with stories from people who have had to escape their countries of birth and become refugees. The stories I've selected here cover very different eras and very divergent countries. Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Chile and Czechoslovakia or what is today Slovakia. And they deal with quite different aspects of the experience of refugees, whether it be the process of coming here, the circumstances that lead to someone becoming a refugee, the painful goodbyes, the long journey to get here, but they all essentially have in common one thing, and that is that they involve people who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, caught up in events beyond their control. They may have been the wrong ethnicity, had the wrong politics, or even just the wrong family name. So these are just a few little personal glimpses into these different refugee experiences, and I hope they encourage you to listen to the full episodes of Reza, Nancy, Cedric, and Yeni, and hear more about their, you know, really fascinating stories. I came to Australia in 1st of 2012. I came to Australia as a refugee by both. I'm one of the both people. I was been in the Christmas Island for a month, then nearly nine months in Curtin, in the detention center. And when immigration believed that I'm the right person, they let me go and I went to Sydney for a month. So that time was a terrible time in my life, I think because I had no English, no family, no friends, and I couldn't find a job in Sydney, which is it's unbelievable because t- Sydney's are many, many opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> when I left my son and my wife behind, my son was 45 days old, and my wife, she has grew up my son by herself without me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I send her money, I support her for economy, but it's not enough. If, if money is not everything. Yeah. But when family join together, it's it means huge things. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it must have been a, a pretty big decision to leave leave your family at that time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, it's over now. I have my family down here, and I'm happy for my son's future, and. I don't need to be worried about him or, you know, I don't want to tell something sad, but, you know, people in other countries with different life experience, they have really hard situation. And that's why I decided to move, to find somewhere safe for my family. I know it's really hard to, uh, you know, if, if you imagine that someone live in Melbourne with their family and move to Tasmania for work for a week, it's really hard to not see their family. Yeah, I I did that because of the better future, better life or safe place to live. Did you you imagine it would take so long for your family to get together again? Or did you just sort of not think about it at the time? Actually, on that time, really not. Mm. But yeah, it takes a long time. On that time now, now I never think about it's gonna be take all my life. 
yeah. your just to be clear your um family your wife and your kid they were living in iran while you were yeah here? when i left them be- them behind yeah they are right in iran yeah because as i understand um a lot of afghans end up in who are yeah, escaping uh, it yeah I, I actually my, yeah my my parents left afghanistan long time ago okay yeah when i was around one or two years old uh-huh yeah and uh, that means I, I have no idea about afghanistan because i've never been there originally i'm from afghanistan i'm ethnically i'm back to hazara people yeah i'm hazara yeah and most of hazara people is migrate to other countries just because there's not safe for Hazara people. Yeah, yeah. I guess a lot of people would have heard about the persecution of the Hazara people. Yeah. Because they're a minority in Afghanistan, yeah. aren't they? No, no, the big group of ethnic group in Afghanistan. Yeah, we are a small group of uh, people in Afghanistan and yeah, Hazara people, I think Hazara people is uh, working hard to, and really sexist, but they have no rights there. Yeah, not a safe place for them in Afghanistan, sadly. <laughs> I mean, I guess for those people who don't, don't know, I think it was it 1973 there was a coup? Yes, September, 11 of September. R11 of September yeah. 1973 happened. And that from that, this was from a colorful, and then we entered a very dark and gray period growing yeah. up. So you were, you were quite, you were just like at school at that time. Yeah, I was 11 and I was in primary school, very close to my house. Like as a child, how was the change noticeable to you? For us, and I guess for everybody that lived during that period, it was a before and after. Mm-hmm. And before that, like, my family was very political in many ways. And I remember before that, we have a socialist mm-hmm. government. And during that time, the president have a pledge that we were not going to be hungry. We were not going to, we were going to have education and and health and everything. So, and we did. I remember the tracks were coming to the, my, where I live with milk of different colors because we had to have milk mm-hmm. and that was a right that we had to have. And then after that, they killed the president and we lost all those things. Mm. And it was a period where in September, from September during probably a whole year, where we have to look for food, where my mom have to cook anything. So it was very, very um, hard for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Because what I was interested in, in, in sort of knowing more about was, of course, you know, everyone can read about General Pinochet and the numbers of people who disappeared and so on. But I was interested in knowing the, the actual personal uh, impacts that that change had. And mm. the, the milk is interesting. Yeah. This is a good, good, it is good, good. example. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's, it's 
just symbol it's symbolic of this thing taken away. Yeah, and it was every day. It's like something that we have, and every child. I think the pledge was that every child have to have one liter of milk mm-hmm. a day, and we did have it. It's something that we did have it, but it was a lot of um, discontent mm-hmm. because the poor people were having what. We were our rights, I guess. Um, so it was a lot of stuff. And we knew where, it, like, even I didn't know I was a child, but I, I went to school on September 11 in the morning, and then I started to hear planes going up, and mm-hmm. the teachers were looking, and then you start to hear bombs exploding very far away, but you could hear it. And we hear the last speech that President Allende did. But um, I I remember that's the last thing we hear, and I remember my mom crying and everybody and other people celebrating. It was like completely polarized country. Mm. Like it was too, like the people from the rich people that they were losing everything because we were getting other things. They were celebrating and we were like mourning. Mm. And then we have curfews. Yeah. where we couldn't go out at all and we had people that we knew they were dead or disappeared. Uh, we had people missing that, thank God, we found him, like my brother-in-law and everything. And it's quite emotional because in in a way when we talk about it, but at that time you have to survive, you know, you have to go through yeah. and you have to, without complaining, if you go hungry, you go hungry. If you go, if you are scared, you go scared. It was something like that. So, so that's the way we we grow up. Yeah. Yeah, and I and so I guess if people complained, they got mm. in trouble. Yeah, most of the people that are they were like most of the people that are disappear or kill during that time believe in the in the in the in the that nothing was going to happen to them because. Nothing like that happened in my country before. So mm. if they were looking for them, they will go and, and present themselves to the police and say, I'm here, thinking that they were going to have a fair trial or something like that. But nothing happened. They disappeared and died. So after that, when we saw that, we were like, yeah, we couldn't complain. I remember uh, my, my brother-in-law used to be the second in command of President Allende. He was the okay. minister, I think, um, home affair minister. Mm-hmm. So they were looking for him. Um, my sister had a guard from the military guarding her and see wh- where she go, what she do, and everything. And so our house was going, got raided so many times. Right. So my family... I remember my mom knew and she would send us to the neighbor and we would hear my sister's crying or people and voices, strange voices. And I could hear my neighbor who was a Christian praying. Mm. So then we would go back home and see what happened. And my other brother-in-law who had nothing to do with anything was taken to the National Stadium Mm. where they kill a lot of people. I don't know if you know about Victor Jara which is a very international scene, he got killed there. So we didn't know if he was going to come alive, but Sangaki did mm. after probably two months been there, but very damaged yeah. still. So 
I, I remember one Sunday, my mom was in the Catholic church and they came, all these policemen came and these people were in plain clothes and they say, where is your mom? And they say, she's in church. And this man, and I remember he was wearing only one sock. Right. <laughs> and, he went, and, I say, and they say, oh, you have to go and get your mom. So they were waiting for my mom. My mom, my mom is a widow, so she only she looked after us. And yeah. My father died when I was five. So, and I say no, I can't go because I, I only go one sock. And then the policeman, this guy, say, "Oh no, you look beautiful. Just go." So I went, ran, and got my mom. My mom was in church. So when she was walking through the street, these people were calling her and say, "Come and hide here. Don't go there." So my mom say, I have nothing to fear. So I, I, I have done nothing wrong. So she went. And I think this is, I, I don't remember, but my sister did talk about it. I remember they were, they were joking that they were going to take one of my sisters mm. with them. And we knew what would have happened to them. And I don't know how my mom, and she hit the, the table and say, nobody take anybody from Kia. And she swear for the first wow. time they went, oh. And so so they didn't take her. Yeah. They didn't take her. Some God, nothing like that happened to to our family. I never had the choice to come to Tasmania. However, I should say I came here to Australia as part of the humanitarian entrant program. Mm-hmm. And when you go through that settlement process, you do not pick where you want to go. But I remember, um, and I knew that we were coming to Tasmania about two, three days prior to the trip. And my mom had um, a friend or someone that she knew who was already in Australia. And it happens that that person was in Townsville. So the person made a request that now we've been together with um, this family, we would like them to come to Townsville. So this was the time that we were then told you were supposed to go to Tasmania, but then we also received a request from someone who wants you to come to Townsville. What is your decision? We knew nothing about Tasmania. We knew nothing about Townsville. Talk less about Australia, just hearing things in general. The only popular place in Australia that we knew was Sydney. So mom looked at us because it was my brother and I. He said, what do you want us to do? We said, we did not know either Townsville or Tasmania, but because it was picked that we go to Tasmania in the first instance, let's go to Tasmania first. And if we don't like it, we can then request to go to Townsville. And ever since I have been in love with this place, <laughs> never went to Townsville, never visited Townsville yeah, right. in Queensland, but that's how I managed to, um, to be in Tasmania Hobart. So how old were you at that time? I was about to turn 18, actually turn 18, you can then guess my age, uh, 2008, I turned 18 
in the air coming to Australia. So I was still, um, I felt that I, I knew things. I was becoming an adult. But few years later, I discovered and I was still quite childish. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was 18 at uh, 17 or 18 at the time. Yes. And did you come directly from the Congo or like I know a lot of Congolese come from third countries? Similar story. Uh, we, we were in a very tiny um, country in, in um, West Africa called Benin. Many mm. people probably okay. don't know about it, but it's uh, sharing borders with, with Nigeria, Togo, and um, and the like. So we were in Benin for um, about six years. Okay. And from Benin, then when we were accepted to come to Australia after a very lengthy and stressful process, because you've got to go through an interview, and if you do not convince the interview panel then it rejected yeah um so we and do you have those interviews was it possible to have those interviews in benin or did you have to go no somewhere? we had we had the interviews in benin um the australian government flew i guess the immigration agent um to to benin we had the interviews in benin so the way that the process works the unhcr probably conduct pre-interviews with you and they will determine whether or not they could make recommendation yep. to um, another country such as Australia, the US or Canada. If they are satisfied that you are a potential candidate, then they will make the recommendation. So which was our case. And then uh, once they, they do have a certain number, the country comes and conduct those those interviews you go through the medical checks not everyone get um a tick at the end of that process and it's it's even more devastating than having a chance to to go to, to the interview stage i don't want to assume too much but my guess was that you your family had to leave because of the civil war related to that yes the family had to leave because of 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 the civil war and and the situation that was happening look my my last name was the same uh last name of the then opposition leader and we do come from the same province it's like here in in tasmania we say look i am a tasmanian i'm a queenslander and and so on so they could in congo it's they would easily identify you thanks to your name they can they can really guess where you're coming from okay um uh, what language you speak could also be be a guide so we we're sharing the same last name trust me not family related at all the only common thing was yes we were all coming from the same province and the way that people do get names um in congo it's you can be my good friend i give uh, birth to my son and then i said all right in recognition of whatever you would have done yep. i carry your full identity and i give it to my son okay so this is probably how we ended up sharing that last name and that caused us a problem and because we were then believed to be associated to the 
then um, political uh, opposition leader. And let's face it, it was almost at the crossroad after the end of the Mobutu regime. Um, and that opposition leader really gave a lot of headache to Mobutu. You would probably know if you have, um, you know, this, the, the history of the Congo, Echenti Sekedi. They gave, gave a lot of hard time to Mobutu. And then there was the entrance of Kabila, who really wanted to get rid of um, anything to do with, with Mobutu and implement his own system. Mm -hmm. So we're talking of 1997. Things really escalated in 1998 and the only good thing between that period until 2003 or so was where possible if you could leave, do that. And thanks to some, I mean, support of um, church communities and so on, we managed to, um, to escape to the best of our abilities and we're still very, very young at the time. Things have changed in 1968, 21st of August, when we were occupied, our country was occupied by Russian, by USSR and the Warsaw Pact Army. That was to do with the Prague Spring? It was it? about the yeah, Dubček and Prague Spring. It, uh, it was preceded with a very dramatic and exhilarating dice where we thought that uh, there is a kind of freedom which we never really experienced. But uh, I do understand now why we didn't know what was happening when we were occupied. It was a die when the aeroplanes kept circling around us and we had no idea what, what, what was happening. And the next die... My mom went to work and she phoned me back and she said, do you know that the whole city is full of Russian tanks? And this is how I find out that we were occupied. Turn on the television and we find out then about the Prague and all, all the dramatic things which has happened. But prior to that, on the morning at 4 o'clock, the phone rang in our place and uh, my husband's cousin was working as a dispatch guy in uh, somewhere, some kind of car company, autobus or something company. And he said, I don't know what is happening, but the tanks are pouring in through the east from Russia mm -hmm. to Košice. So we, we thought that there was something and we knew about Prague Spring. Anyway... When we find out all about this, it was very dramatic because there was some shooting in the city. I uh, didn't go to work for about a week and I was trying to find out where I will hide with the children. But uh, to the end, uh, I went back to work and because of the place, it was like a city council, my workplace. Uh, it was surrounded by tanks with all the Russian soldiers sitting in the turrets playing harmonica and uh, people from the office went down to them and because we were taught Russian kind of basically we could communicate with them they thought that they were in West Germany that mm. they uh, 
suppressing an uprising, which didn't happen, but I'm not talking about places like Prague and that because they had a different experience. But this mm-hmm. is my experience, and I'm saying it as it happened to me, who thought it all out. No future for us and our children in this country after the occupation by USSR. No prospect of keeping our jobs, no university studies for children, no security. Only tanks with Russian soldiers sitting in turrets with their katyushkas at the ready. There were seven of us, four adults and three children. My mother, whom we called mommy, Chepi, my sister, six years, my junior and her one-year-old son, Roman, my husband, Jano, myself, and our two children, Istvan and Zhuri. All together in February 1969, we escaped illegally from the country behind the Iron Curtains, then called Czechoslovakia. Before our departure, we read the pamphlets about Australian way of life, which we were sent by a friend who had already escaped, and he got them from Australian embassy in Vienna. We compared the minimum wages, the housing, the schooling, the prices, and the freedom. We were well informed, even worked out after all our weekly shopping of grocery and adding some small luxuries, we still would have $5 saved from our minimum wages. Five whole dollars. What a country, I thought. We thought about it all and about the luxury of vast possibilities. The decision of emigrate is a complex issue. Emotional, emotional, political, financial, and moral questions have to be considered. And they were, what will be a moral and financial consequences for my mother to leave her job as a legal advisor to a large wholesale firm? for my sister to leave her teaching position and for me to give up my position of secretary to the invalid committee, and for my husband, who had 150 people working under him. All right, all right, I argued. I know there will be insecurities, unknown problems, and problems with the language, but the hardest part surely had to be to get over the borders. Once we are safe in a free country, this will be good. A little hardship for a short while, that's all. We are all healthy, well-meaning, and hard-working people. That belief and my capability to voice my opinion with a self-confidence and assuredness helped. They all listened and believed in the picture I painted about our bright future. One cold winter morning, when the snow was heavily weighing down the bare branches of trees and the streets looked like ancient fairy, enchanted fairy tale, we turned the key in the door of our flat on the second floor in the block of flats and carried the three suitcases, which from then on represented all our belonging to a railway station where we caught the train to Vienna. Not only the furniture, but the dunas, bedsheets, coats, parkas, the porcelain, books, and paintings were all left behind. We left behind everything we knew. The streets we know how to walk on, the shops we knew how to shop in, the language we knew how to communicate through, and the system which we have learned to find our way in. We left behind our culture, our identity, and friends. The memories never faded.